You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa, dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing at or coming soon to film scene. Our lineup includes the new hockey documentary, Red Army, which continues to play at film scene this week and the next. Next, we'll be discussing The Boy in the World by Brazilian director Ale Abruye. The Boy in the World plays on Tuesday, April 7th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Horizons, a series dedicated to bringing awareness to world cinema. And finally, we'll be discussing John Waters' Crybaby, which plays this Saturday night, April 4th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Catherine Steinbach, the programming director of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Catherine. Hello, glad to be here. And Changmin Yu, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Changmin. Hello, everyone. I'm Leah Vanderheide, Bijou's executive director. I should also mention that all three of us are film studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. During our first segment, we'll be discussing Red Army with independent filmmaker and film scenes co-founder Andrew Sherburn. Andrew has written, directed, and or produced several documentaries, including, apropos to our discussion of Red Army today, the film Pond Hockey. Welcome, Andrew, and we're super thrilled to have you here. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> excited to be here. Before we begin, Catherine, while you may not... Be a huge hockey fan. You do enjoy a good rehashing of Cold War politics. I do. I think. <laughs> so perhaps you can give us some context for our discussion of the film. I like hockey just fine. Um, <laughs> um, and really, this documentary is ostensibly about uh, Cold War Soviet hockey, and, it's partic- and in particular, its star defenseman Slava Fedosov. But so many aspects of Soviet culture shine through. The film references dance, chess, and of course, politics. Fedosov is in fact now a politician in Russia after 13 seasons in Moscow and then emigration to the U.S. and joining the NHL. He had seasons with the New Jersey Devils and the Detroit Red Wings. Fedosov is overwhelmingly confident, often hilariously so, um, but who wouldn't be with two Olympic gold medals and a Stanley Cup? It must be said that this is an American view of Fedosov and Soviet culture generally, and therefore veers towards kind of boogeyman characterization somewhat often, driving home the communist as the great ideological other. Fedosov was part of the Soviet team during the 1980 Winter Olympics and was therefore defeated by the quote-unquote miracle on ice U.S. team. The film can't help but be quietly joyous about that event, uh, but certainly the Soviets bounced back. As much as I might criticize the American point of view that's at the heart of the film, um, it does provide a cheeky irreverence and makes the film very funny. The director, Gabe Polsky, is young and fascinated and maybe somewhat green, uh, but since Werner Herzog co-produced this film, you're in safe and strange hands. I really liked this film. So to begin our discussion, Andrew, as a Minnesotan, 
You have a very <laughs> high level of inborn hockey knowledge. Uh, but more importantly, as a fellow hockey documentarian, how did you feel about Red Army's depiction of the sport and its history? Uh, well, I really loved the film as well. Uh, I thought it was fantastic, and uh, it's great to see more hockey documentaries out there. Um, <laughs> I should mention, actually, before I answer that question, sorry, that I also directed a film called uh, Forgotten Miracle, which was about the very first U.S. team to win the gold medal in the Olympics. So, of course, it was forgotten yet again uh, (laughs) (laughs) here tonight, but that's all right. I mean, that's why we made that film. But that film also digs deep into, uh, well, I shouldn't say digs too deep, Um, but it it does discuss the 1960 team, which was also kind of a Cold War conflict between the U.S. and Russia. Um, or the USSR. Um, so kind of with that background, um, I was really uh, excited to see this film, and I really loved um, – it's kind of a – it was a fresh approach, I think, to a well-worn subject, um, which is the Miracle on Ice kind of 1980 U.S. versus USSR rivalry. Um, so mm-hmm. it was really, I thought, um, special to see a lot of the footage, the archival footage that uh, Polsky digs up for this yeah. film. Um, there are things that I think, you know, even with all the hockey archival footage I've seen, I hadn't seen, you know, these players rolling around on the ice and carrying each other and, you know, practicing ballet on skates. Um, those are things that you never really would have anticipated, um, seeing, uh, especially from a Soviet hockey team. So I thought it was really great to see some of this, uh, you know, this footage that I'd never seen before. Um, and then, like I said, just a fresh take on, on a topic that I think even casual sports fans know something about, which is the Miracle on Ice team. And to see it from, I, I agree that it does have an American perspective, the film, certainly. But yeah. I also think that, it, you know, it's certainly, um, it's not the, a, a very, you know, strict, traditional American interpretation of those events. And I, I do think that, uh, it was, you know, Fedisov was, was given a lot of um, leeway to kind of give us his interpretation, so... Yeah, I mean, I do think it's really interesting, like you were saying, the some of the footage, especially of the kids in training, you know? I don't know whether or not that seemed shocking to other people. Maybe hockey does kind of, it, like, come into your childhood and you grow up with it, or, you know, I'm not sure, but, like, uh, but it certainly seemed to for these specific players on that Moscow team that was, like, the big central team, uh, during that specific era. Um, so I I don't know. Did you guys note all of the, the kind of child training that that was going on? Yeah, absolutely. The child training was fantastic, but I don't know if that visual is, um, more exciting than watching them play chess on a like hockey rink layout. (laughs) Like they were actually, they had chess pieces on the, on like what was effectively, the hockey rink, and then they were like playing chess as if it was hockey, or playing hockey as if it were chess. Yeah, I, that footage like blew everything else out of the water for me because I just thought that was so. Um, yeah, it was really cool to see that they did that. Yeah, and then the the I can't remember his name. My goodness, um, the the big kind of famous coach. Um, the first first the first coach, coach Tarasov. Taras, yeah, Tarasov. Um, uh, he's like using dance as well mm-hmm. to help train everyone, including kids, which is pretty funny. Um, anyway, uh, I well, don't know. When I was watching the film, I feel like the documentary has this very ambiguous relationship with its protagonist, which is a Ferdisov, because uh, the director definitely believes 
uh, Fedosov as a great man, but he doesn't really know how to gauge or evaluate his achievements, especially because he is a politician in Russia right now, mm-hmm. and he's trying to do all these things. But like, how can you support the values of uh, of sport when you are in an authoritarian regime that yeah. doesn't really has a democracy? So it's I don't know. That's that's how I feel when I was watching the film. Well, I love that、uh, Fedosov is. He doesn't really throughout the whole movie. He doesn't really conform to one idea of what、mm-hmm. we have,、um, especially if, you know a, a Russian hockey defenseman. I mean, you know that should be like the epitome of you know the, the Soviet, the pinnacle of Soviet athletics. But、um, <clears throat> you know, beyond that, I mean, I think he's 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 a very layered person and.、Um, You know, one thing that I, I loved was the way the film starts、um, with kind of this、uh, this bit that's pulled out.、Um, mm-hmm. That's you know not really part of the interview, but when they're just prepping for the interview, and this back and forth that Polsky and Fedosov have, where Fedosov's basically ignoring him, and Polsky's just kind of stammering the <laughs> yeah you know, these worn out cliches about what life must have been like in the USSR and. Because you didn't have things, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just you know clearly he's answered questions like that so many times, and you know, and it's all just so trite, and so he just、yeah. you know gives him the finger. But、uh. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's one of the like what's one of my main questions? Like this informality, especially in the interview style with Fedosov. Like I think that that gives for me. Those moments give it so much more on authenticity. Like I love seeing the filmmaker interact. You know, even if you don't see the filmmaker's body, you see the interactions happening, and you like,、um, and that lends to a specific kind of tone for the film, which is kind of this cheeky irreverence because you're not like taking this person as their most composed self.、Mm. You're taking them as their most kind of brushing you off, informal. Strange, but still, there's some warmth and friendship there. That's that you can sense. I think. Well, the nice thing was that this film didn't try to be a complete counterpoint to films like Miracle,、um, and just say like, here's this whole other way of looking at things, and it's the total opposite of the American point of view and this particular historical point of view that we've been fed and that Americans in particular celebrate. Is instead, it sort of inhabited a lot of rhetorical ground within itself as a film, if that makes sense. Like it wasn't just saying, "Like here's my point of view, and this is the counter to what you've heard before." It's sort of like Fedosov at this point has been through so much in his lifetime that it's a very complicated story, and he has a very complicated relationship with both the Soviet Union, with memories of his childhood, with his with the present day government in Russia, like. With his present day、um, contemporaries within the Russian government, so there's no way to just sort of offer the other side of the argument. Like it's not that simple. It's not the Cold War anymore. And this film, I think, does a nice job of balancing that. Yeah, I think we even see、um, you know a very balanced、uh, view of of America from the point of view of Fedosov.、Um, you know, he instead of when he finally does, you know, it's kind of one of the triumphant moments in the in the film where his he takes this very Kind of、um, proud stance about how he will eventually come to the NHL and come to the U.S.、Um, and 
And then when he does arrive, uh, he's not greeted with kind of the warm expectation that, you know, mm-hmm. Americans probably have, uh, you know, uh, have a rosy picture of how we welcome these Soviet <laughs> yeah. stars. <20 laughs> yeah. years ago. Like, oh, you know, it was wonderful. They finally were free of the totalitarian regime and they could finally, you know, make their millions and you know, play and have freedom. Mm-hmm. But uh, it wasn't quite like that. And, and you find out that he wasn't really welcomed the way that we would have. Well, and I think that part of that is because he didn't defect, right? Like he waited to get sanctioning to go and and he has this rhetoric that goes over and over again. Like he's not going to run away from his country. He's not going to do something uh, that would be somehow sneaking away or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like a big part of his like sense of self that he has to go um, by choice, but also, um, you know, sanctioned by the government and, and so it's unlike maybe those previous people who had come through defecting. And then, of course, it's like, welcome to American ideology. You have fled the other choice. And this is wonderful. But it was still so complicated <laughs> on the American side. There's that great interview or like clip from an American fan who's like, I don't like that we're giving away these jobs to Russians when they should go to Americans. When like, that's the definition of capitalism. Like the best guy for the job is going to get it and he's going to get all the money. And it's yeah. like, then watching that play out was like, that's not fair. <laughs> I enjoyed. Well, but like, uh, Fedisov is this very, very patriotic person. And I mean, one thing, that uh, wasn't made clear in the film. In the film, is that why he came to the United States? I mean, I we know that he wants to play uh, in the in the NHL, but like, but he was already in the best team of the world, right? So why did he come to the United States and play? Like, uh, did he come just for the money, or did he come for a certain kind of change of style? That that was made clear in the film, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, at least my understanding of it, was a lot of it came down to, uh, some of it was certainly the money, but some of it was just the lifestyle. I mean, these, uh, you know, this team was the Red Army team, and ostensibly these guys were part of the, the Soviet Army, but they never really were. They played hockey all the time. And in fact, that was the only thing they ever did. 11 months of hockey, and, you know, they saw yeah. their families for a few weeks, and you know, couldn't leave for family emergencies and things like that. And the training was just brutal. And I think, uh, at least in the end, after Tikhonov takes over. And so I think, you know, I think that was ultimately what it was. In the beginning, you know, Fedosov, I think he would have been happy playing for his original coach, Tarasov, mm-hmm. till, till the end of his days. He because, was like the benevolent right. uh, authoritarian <laughs> versus the like tyrannical right. authoritarian in the, in the second coach. Yeah, I think he, and he represent right, he represents some of the great things that came out of, you know, the, the Soviets in that, that century, you know, ballet and chess and, and hockey. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was beautiful, right? I mean, yeah. the Soviet, the way they played the game was beautiful. Um, and unlike certainly anything that was happening in, in NHL at the time. So that was, you know, something that I think he would have been happy to have been a part of. But then once that coaching change happened, because the Tarasov wasn't really a member of that kind of dictatorial, um, you know, regime that was in power. I mean, it, it does. It, and then Tikhonov comes in and he is, he's a, he's a hardliner. It's all about discipline. It's all about training. Um, and so I think it really sets up kind of those two um, images that we might have of Russian culture from, from that era. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll continue our discussion of Red Army with Andrew Sherburn. And now a special message from Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. 
Congratulations to KRUI Radio on 30 long years on the air. For 30 years, students have been able to gain valuable experience through their work at the station, and listeners have enjoyed your music and programming. Now, 30 years ago, I wished you the best of luck on your new adventure. So today, I congratulate you on your great accomplishment and wish you many more years to come. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films, playing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing Red Army with Andrew Sherburn. Catherine, did you have another question that we were, that was lingering? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, Andrew, you were getting to this point of um, talking about the choreography of the Red Army team and how beautiful it was. And... I was really struck by the kind of juxtaposition between the kind of Soviet elegance and then the American rough and tumble, like, you know, renegade style. <laughs> uh, and it was interesting because on the one hand, it was glorifying this kind of uh, intelligence and choreography on the Soviet side. But on the other hand, when Fedosov and these other players emigrate to America, then they're sort of feminized, right, with the American rough-and-tumble style uh, hockey playing. So I was just wondering about your thoughts about this kind of juxtaposition between the two styles and whether or not you think, uh, as obviously an expert in hockey, I'm assuming, (laughs) uh, whether or not that has kind of evolved. Have have they evolved together, those styles? Uh, Have they kind of blended or um, have they remained juxtaposed? No, I think, uh, you know, that was the beginning of a, of a major shift, I think, in, in the way hockey is played in the NHL, in, in the professional league. You know, that's kind of the high, you know, the NHL is the top league in the world. Um, and certainly in the early 90s, um, just before these players came over, um, the American style was the dominant style. Um, and it was very rough. I mean, you know, there were enforcers for every team that would, you know, pick fights and um you know, it was it was rough, and it was actually very a lot of pretty talented, um, you know, uh, very nimble forwards couldn't make it in that game. They were too small, and mm-hmm. there was given too much leeway given to those big defensemen. So, um, you know, the the Soviets came over, and I think once you, everyone got a glimpse of what they did together when they all finally ended up on the same team in the NHL uh, for Detroit, um, then I think it was accepted. You know, once once they won that Stanley Cup. It wasn't like, oh, there's the Soviet style and then there's what we do here. Well, now that was part of the NHL. And and some rule changes came out of that. And the game did, I think, you know, it was it was a very low-scoring game for a while, and now the scoring's gone up, and there's a lot more flair and um, just, you know, freedom allowed. You know, that's the irony, yeah. right, is that the Soviets <laughs> brought more freedom yeah. to the game <laughs> in the NHL, but it's true. And um, so I do think that, you know, ultimately that style kind of won out, um, Certainly the NHL is still a, a tough place to do business. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, it was perestroika time, as we learn in the documentary. Yeah. So there's an yeah. opening up, guys. Right. An opening up <laughs> on the ice, in the world. <laughs> I'm curious, Andrew, about uh, making a documentary about hockey. Um, hockey has an interesting relationship with, well, at least the American public. Not every American can has the sort of wherewithal to watch a hockey game. Um, some people don't like 
they can't follow the puck is like a common complaint. Um, <laughs> and I would wondered, like, is that something you ever think about when you're making a hockey documentary? And I wondered if the filmmakers had to consider that when they're showing all of this hockey footage um, in, in putting together Red Army, which is like really beautifully crafted and edited together. Um, but I don't know. That was just something that was running through my mind. Is that an off the wall question? No, I mean, I think, you know, there was, you know, once again, it was like in the 90s when NHL was becoming more popular. And then, you know, there's one clip you see in the film where the, it's like from Fox when Fox had the NHL and they added that tail to the puck. Yeah, you know they had like the little glowing puck. Glowing puck. <laughs> puck. Were, the, the comet ho- puck. The yeah. comet puck. And the hockey diehards just hated it for good reason. Um can you imagine like a football and then in the Super well, Bowl they do with, with like a the, tail? What, first yeah, now they do, now? right? Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow, Leah. Because <laughs> I'm just really into sports. Um, but yeah, I do think that you know, of all kind of the major sports in the U.S., um, hockey's probably the least understood, and people are the least familiar with it. Um, I do think HDTV has helped that a lot, actually, because you can see the puck quite a bit better. Um, but I did notice when you know a lot of the uh, archival footage that they used. Um, they would zoom in sometimes. Um, they would focus very much on play. Some of the plays never really got, you know, you didn't see the start of the play or the end of the play. They would just show kind of the most elegant parts of the passing or, you know, something like that. Um, so they certainly picked uh, sequences that would be easily digested, I think. Plus yeah. it's, it's, you know, on the big screen, you can see it pretty well. That's um, true. But no I, one I, has I, suggested making the puck. I don't know, four times bigger? <laughs> no? I don't think that's been suggested. <laughs> but I did, you know, one Follow thing that I was going to say is I really appreciate it. The, the sequence that deals with the miracle on ice that mm. is in this film, because, you know, obviously there have been, there's been a documentary film, Do You Believe in Miracles, mm-hmm. and a narrative film, Miracle, devoted to that game, mm-hmm. essentially, and that team. Um, so I think a, a lot of Americans are familiar with it, but you know the, the segments that they use from that uh, game are much different in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I love that it's just contrasted with kind of his just... He never says a word. He, you know, yeah. he's, he's prompted to talk about that game, and he says nothing during the course of that right. um, segment and, and the tension really is so powerful. great yeah. there because what the film does is it builds up Fedosov and the the Russian or the um Soviet team's confidence you know and then it just tears it down at that 1980 moment mm-hmm. and then has to build it back up through uh through the rest of the film uh, which is really interesting to like have the character that we're following have such a strange evolution right of of getting kind of torn down. Narratively, it was also just great to see that game essentially in the first third of this documentary, whereas, yeah, with with an American telling of it in both the documentary and, and the narr- and the narrative film, uh, fiction film, it's obviously it's the, the penultimate moment or the right. ultimate moment of yeah, the film where it's over. like, this is, it's all <laughs> happening. And this was just sort of like, that happened. That was too bad. And then we went to get more gold medals later. Like it was... <laughs> Well, it gives you a very, very different effect because uh, the 1980 defeat was seen as a temporary drawback, like on a higher pinnacle, like because like, okay, they, they, they got this set back, but that doesn't mean they are not good. It just means that maybe something unexpected happened. So it's like, oh, we, we have this 
very, very, I would say beautiful narrative arc in this mm-hmm. documentary because like if we get to see uh, despite the historical facts, if, if we get to see their success too soon, it, it gives us, you know, less satisfaction in watching the success of Fertisov uh, in 1984 Olympics and 1988 Olympics in that sense. Yeah. Um, well, y'all have pointed to this, uh, the way that the film is edited and the way that um, the narrative really arcs in this really lovely way. And I did want to get to, you know, more specifics about how the film is edited, but also there's this great section um, with the kind of propaganda posters and animation, <laughs> that little segment. Um, I thought that was really cool. And I just wanted to know if that struck you guys and if that, how that fit into this idea of how to edit a documentary and how to um, kind of give a break maybe from, uh, from the kind of archival footage or interview footage that can get a little bit maybe, maybe heavy for viewers. Um, Andrew, did you, did you notice that section as, as kind of an interesting offtake? Yeah, I, I really like that section as well. I, I was actually a little bit surprised that it was the only time we saw that in the film, like yeah. that specific, you know, Soviet mm-hmm. propaganda usage. I guess they used like some trading card kind of pictures <laughs> later. But um, yeah, I loved it. I mean, it was a really concise way to kind of switch from hockey back to um, just general kind of Soviet propaganda. And then I think the end of that is like, Soviets have the bomb, right? Isn't mm-hmm. that what happens at the end of that section? Yeah. So it was like this, you know, very short um graphically rich way to kind of summarize, I guess, uh, that era. Um, but yeah, it was, it was cool. It was fun to watch certainly. Um, and I think it communicated a lot. And it was nice to see, they do a really clever thing with the text. I mean, the Russian alphabet is mm-hmm. just inherently, uh, dis- distancing to, uh, well, to me as a viewer who speaks English. Um, <laughs> so, but they were doing this thing where they'd sort of like, switch over the type as you were watching it so you could see the translations taking place. Um, right. And they, I guess they did that with the graphics with everybody's name too, yeah. um, which there was something, there's just always something good to like about r- being reminded that other languages exist <laughs> and are ways to communicate and that they shouldn't just be sort of like a foreign distancing symbol to you. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and the way that we start the film too, which with Fetisov on the phone and he's just da, 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 like he's just <laughs> speaking Russian on the phone and you're just like, mm-hmm. like you're with this, uh, uh, filmmaker watching him speak Russian on the phone. Like what's happening? Uh, when is he going to talk to me? <laughs> Please put your attention towards me. So it, we already enter the film with this sense of like, the kind of competing languages because we have questions being thrown at him in English and him talking on the phone in Russian and, and all of that right. stuff. So it's, it's interesting, the, uh, the language juxtaposition. Yeah. And I think all of those things represent kind of that barrier, right. That we have where we, we don't have a very good understanding of what that era was like from Fedosov's point of view. Um, and we have all these preconceptions, um, that sometimes inhibit our understanding of, of what it was, what it was like, what his experience was really like. And I love how at the very end of the film, it's flipped on its head when then Fedisov has this preconception of Polsky, right? Mm-hmm. And then he's, he's like, ah, oh, California, boy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chicago. Yeah. The last word of the film is just Chicago. Yeah, <laughs> right. God, yeah I but, laughed so loud. But it totally flips on the head, like even after all this time, you know. <laughs> 
we still don't totally understand each other. And I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. And it gives you a feeling um, to talk about the, let me get back to the propaganda animation sequence mm -hmm. because uh, the sequence was uh, used to depict the five main unit. So uh, it gives me a feeling that, that something this beautiful, this incredibly um, sincere can only happen in a to totalitarian regime. That's why Fetisov always had this kind of nostalgia toward that mm -hmm. period, right? Because like we, we, uh, at the end of the film, we have this, you know, sort of critique about how capitalism invades into Russia and like how mm -hmm. that tears apart their um, league and hockey system and whatnot. So it's like, it's strange. Like uh, he really cherished that time, but at the same time, he has really completed relationship towards that regime. So. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more essentially totalitarian than than sports. I mean, at least in my experience, if not living in the Soviet Union um, or having ever been in the military, I guess, like the idea of that when you're in a sports team is like the one time where you have like a coach who tells you what to do and you have to do it. And there's no sort of question response with that type of relationship. And you're, you and your teammates just have to like form a cohesive unit. Um, yeah, there's, there's just like interesting parallels between showing that and then sort of watching what the Soviet Union as a dictatorial regime is and what it means to be on a team, on a sports team. Yeah, and so much of it, you know, the kind of oscillation that Fedosov goes through with his kind of allegiances does have so much to do with trust, right? Like you're supposed to do what they say, the coach, the dictator, whatever, you know, but but that relationship is so fundamentally based on trust that it can't hold, like with the second coach, it it's just like not sustainable because there's this lack of, of respect and trust between them. So it really, I think it, it does have, um, a more complex ideological, maybe moral of the tale, you know, <laughs> uh, at the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think that that's true. And I think that's in, in some ways it's, it's this mirror of kind of the downfall of the Soviet union. Right. And, you know, there are many high and mighty, um, aspirations that they had and they all, like you said, I mean, once you kind of the trust erodes and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the people at the top aren't taking care of the people that they're supposed to, then it all just falls apart. And that's what happened with the hockey team. And that's what happened with ultimately with the, the union. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for coming in the studio today yes, to talk you, to us and yeah, share thanks. your rich knowledge of hockey and movies and... No. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, thanks. Uh, again, Red Army continues to play at Film Scene this week and the next. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. Before we move on to our next film, let's check on the weather. It is currently 76 degrees in Iowa City, fair and breezy. Tonight, 80% uh, chance of thunderstorms with a low of 55. Tomorrow, Thursday, 70% uh, chance of thunderstorms with a high of 68 degrees. You're listening to KRUI Iowa City. 
This is Bijou Banter, a show dedicated to discussing films, playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, The Boy in the World. The Boy in the World is a dazzling animated film by Brazilian filmmaker Ail Abreu. The film depicts the adventures of a young boy who leaves his colorful, soulful home in the countryside to find his father, who has himself recently left home to find work in the big city. The narrative unfolds without the aid of dialogue, save a few snippets of gibberish spoken by the adults, reminiscent of Charlie Brown's pesky teacher in the Peanuts TV specials. Thus, forsaking dialogue, the film instead treats viewers to a vibrant visual world of flora and fauna tinted in every color of a pastel rainbow. The film's aesthetic has provoked comparisons to the paintings of Spanish artist Juan Miro due to the doodlesque and squiggly nature of the people and creatures that inhabit the boy's world. But all is not rosy in this storybook setting. The boy soon encounters a world of hardship and despair, and more specifically, a world of exploitative labor conditions and brutal military power. So from the tale of Princess Kaguya to Rocks in My Pockets and now the boy in the world, we find ourselves discussing once again the ability of animation to tackle serious subjects and adult themes. Catherine Changmin, I'm curious to know if you found form and content to marry well in this film. Well, I feel the aesthetic confusion of this film really plays out well because because like because there's almost no dialogue in this film and everything is conveyed uh, to us visually. So um, sometimes the director would try to wave a boy's fantasy into the actual plot. So it's hard for us to distinguish from the two. And it gives you a feeling that, oh, you, you, you don't really how, you don't really know how to interpret, uh, the events and the, I mean, the things that happened to this little boy. So especially, and the visual style is so spectacular. Like it is, it is, uh, I mean, I would say it gives a, a very, very striking contrast to the brutal message uh, the director wants to tell us, right? So, yes. And I would say it, it, it marries these two different styles really well. And it give, gives us a beautiful, beautiful, um, I don't know, dichotomy or contrast or just uh, a very, very profound animation film. Well, I have to say, so at the beginning of this film, well, like with most animation, I was super struck by the sound design, you know, and I think that especially the first few minutes were definitely meant to be kind of jarred and and denaturalized by the amount of sonic information (laughs) uh, that's coming at you. Um, and so that was like actually, you know, a wonderful experience for me at the beginning of the film and kept me really entranced. Um, I did towards the middle of the film really, really miss more like oral information as far as dialogue. I was just like, "Ah," you know, I just really (laughs) wanted, um, to know what was happening on a different level. So I think that it for me, it got a little bit like, it wasn't ever tedious, but it was just like a little bit frustrating um, around the middle of the film to like get yourself into this 
fully invested in this mode, like, oh, this is going to be the mode for the entire film where I don't get any dialogue or, or really information other than um, visuals. So I think it's, it's difficult, you know? I think that it's a really beautiful and wonderful film for it being such a difficult thing to tackle, I think. Yeah, uh, you know, and as with all animated films, we've talked about this before, the soundscape of The Boy in the World does play a very significant role in the unfolding of the narrative. And I've found the score by Ruben Pfeffer and Gustavo Herlat to be really the perfect pairing to the colorful modernist animation. Though, again, and I think this kind of gets to your point, Catherine, the music seems like something that would appeal to adults and children alike, which then makes me wonder who exactly is the target demographic of this film, who's the ideal spectator? You know, we're talking about this sort of uh, using a form that's that might appeal to children, both in the animation, both in the soundscape. It has no dialogue. Perhaps that gets tedious. Uh, you know, who who is supposed to be watching this film? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's such a political film that that it's meant for at least you know. Uh, 20-somethings, maybe. <laughs> Idealistic, Idealistic, left-leaning, political, left, yeah. <laughs> activist, 20-year-olds on campuses. At least. And uh, then just all, all up, you know, from the, from the 20s up. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, I think it was, I was trying to think about this as a kid's film. And um, while the first few minutes did make me feel very childlike, um, I think that it takes endurance and stamina and uh, lots of critical thinking to go through the film, maybe. Um, but maybe kids wouldn't have, I kept trying to figure out, like, maybe kids wouldn't have a problem with that. Like, maybe they would have just been, because there's a lot of stimulation in this film. Um, yeah. It's a very constant, very fluid film. Um, and maybe kids would just sort of sit back and they might not understand everything uh, and maybe not even understand just how dark it really is. I'm not sure. I don't know. Changmi, what did you think? I don't know. I feel like the kaleidoscopic fireworks would definitely delight children just because, oh, everything is so beautiful and spectacular. And I think in the film, there's definitely uh, a magical quality inherent um, in this depiction of the world because everything seems to be able to communicate with each other. So it's like it has this very uh, fluid quality among things. So in that sense, I would say, okay, children would definitely uh, be fascinated by this kind of, you know, phantasma kind of storytelling. But like, I... I so for that for that quality, I would say this is a kiss film. But I I I feel like there will be there will be definitely a difficulty for the parents to explain the message. Like, how do you want your kid to understand this film? So it's a film that both parents and children can watch, but they can't watch it together and they can't talk about it afterwards. <laughs> so yeah, the film uh, employs uh, a few minutes of live action footage, we, we should say, sort of more towards the end of the film. And it shows the clear cutting of dense forests and just general environmental destruction. And this moment, among others that we've already been discussing, leads me to place the boy in the world uh, in dialogue with the third cinema uh, or perhaps specifically Cinema Novo of the 1960s and 70s, 
which third cinema, sure, we we know here was a term used to describe <laughs> Latin American films of this period that sought to, let's see, one, express the experiences of the masses um, of, a, uh, of a particular region, two, expose unjust historical, social, political, and economic policies, three, raise political consciousness in the spectator, uh, and four, inspire spectators to take revolutionary action and improve their conditions. That's a, a very sort of schematized summation. Um, but given this criteria, given these criteria, would you say that the boy in the world is then part of the third cinema legacy? Is it in dialogue with third cinema legacy? What's going on here? Yes. <laughs> yes. Done. <laughs> Next yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think it really is. I mean, it does all of these things and so much of the power of the film is uh, is establishing what's at stake for uh, working people versus a kind of um, industrial elite or manufacturing elite or, you know, uh, whatever the, the ruling class might be in this kind of... Um, this country of, of sort of fantasy. Cause I don't think it's necessarily even supposed to be specifically uh, Brazil. Right. Uh, although it, I mean, it sort of is, but, um, but it's like a, a meta Brazil. Um. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like since the 1970s, the capitalist exploitation narrative has been retold again and again by so many generations of Latin American directors. So, uh, Although it is politically incorrect to say so, it becomes a cliched uh, story, right? Because, okay, all the different American big corporations come into South America to, you know, extract, uh, extract natural resources from these countries and they leave uh, a mess uh, in those places. So I feel like to, to tell this story anew is the greatest achievement of this animation because it gives you something new to think about, especially it, it targets a different audience, uh, which uh, are supposedly to be kids and children. Because like, I know people re- who really believe in capitalism got their ideas uh, when they were childs. Uh, children, uh, kids or children, right? So I feel like that would be a uh, one way to go if we really want to change how people think about uh, the relationship uh, between certain kind of capitalism and the third world countries. Well, that's interesting. So then that does sort of answer the question of who is this ideal spectator for, for this film, that it's geared, its form is geared at children to indoctrinate them early enough that they won't simply accept without question uh, a capitalist system that they've been born into, but sort of question those processes that subject a, a huge portion of the world to living in intolerable uh, circumstances. I, I buy that. I kind of like that. I mean, it is, it certainly doesn't look like the third cinema <laughs> of <laughs> the sixties and seventies. I mean, this is a, a, a very aesthetically uh, pleasing film. Um, uh, and it's, it, it, feels joyful even in the face of despair, I would say, but, um, I don't know. It's hopeful, you know, uh, at least in, um, in its kind of final assessment of, of the future and the, the kind of, um, role of children in the future, right. That, um, that there is hope in 
in planting the seed, mm-hmm. as it were, uh, of knowledge and of tree. <laughs> and especially because the idea of reincarnation comes up again and again in this film, like the the protagonist uh, seems to be relieve certain periods of his life throughout the film. So it's like, although it is very, very depressing, but um, the film gives us a lot of opportunities to to reverse the irreversible consequences of a certain kind of capitalist ex- exploitation, in essence. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, did you feel, so there's one scene in particular that, I enjoyed, but I could see someone not uh, particularly enjoying it, um, which is the scene with these sort of ethereal floating cities that hover above these creaky mm-hmm. container ships um, and are literally sucking the resources out of the third world. So it's it's one of the more abstract moments in the film, um, which, but somehow I didn't, I, I liked it, but I wondered if people would think that that was too on the nose and sort of in thinking about the relationship between... Uh, the first world and third world, as it were. Well, the messages uh, in this film are often very blunt, right? <laughs> it's not subtle. It's like, although you live in this fantasy world, but there's something that you need to know about your own condition, which is this situation of exploitation. So, yes, it is very apparent on the surface and blunt, but I, I, I know I don't, I don't see that as a, a problem for this film. Catherine, how do you think? Well, I think the section is certainly, I think it's meant to be so pleasurable visually that it's, that it's like seductive, right? This idea of these kind of bubble cities that are these little havens, like little oases, um, but then it it does like totally deconstruct them. Um, so it does set up this perspective of the little boy and the like the fantasy land, right? And then just completely tears it down. Um, so I think uh, I really I liked that section, but I thought it was really the moment of like disillusionment, right? The like the the really kind of pretty brutal take down, you know, and it's when his, his journey literally starts to reverse, right? Like until that moment, he's been moving forward, um, literally to the right side of the screen. (laughs) And that's like when everything, he starts sort of moving backwards and we know that he's not, we start to understand he's not going to be able to get further. All right. Uh, we'll end there. The boy in the world plays on, uh, Tuesday, April 7th at 6 PM as part of Bijou Horizons, a series dedicated to bringing awareness to world cinema. For more information on Bijou Horizons, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. Let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll discuss Crybaby. Support for KRUI is brought to you in part by The Broken Spoke. They offer new and used bicycles, cycling accessories, and also service a variety of bicycles. They can be found in Iowa City at 602 South Dubuque Street. For more information, visit thebrokenspoke.com or call 319-338-8900. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. 
Let's move on to our final film. Cry Baby is a 1990s musical set in 1950s Baltimore by cult film director John Waters. Chung Min, uh, as with all cult musicals, I have no idea where to begin with this film. So perhaps <laughs> you can share your first impressions before we can begin our discussion. Sure. So Cry Baby tells the story of a bad boy with a heart of gold, struggling to win the heart of a good girl, who is one of squares. Of course, this plot sounds lame and probably has been used in 100 other films. But this time, it is a little bit different. It is Johnny Depp from the young adolescent devoured by the bloody geyser coming out of, uh, coming out from his, his bed in a nightmare on Elm Street on the way to his career height as Edward Scissorhand. He has a great lineage of juvenile delinquents before him. James Dean and Marlon Brando in the 50s, Warren Beatty and Paul Newman in the 1960s, Martin Sheen in the 70s, and John Travolta in the 80s. I definitely missed someone, and I think Catherine should add more to this collection. <laughs> so this film self-consciously plays with the subgenre that has not been properly recognized with the chicken games and prison rock and roll as singing Elvis' Joe House Rock. These so-called juvenile delinquent films belong to a phenomenon emerged with the post-war baby boom and the subsequent shift to cater to their test. Rebel Without a Cause, The Wild One, and Blackboard Jungle are among the most famous ones. The Leather Jacket and Motorcycle is a tribute to the image of Brando in The Wild One. The other thing I cannot get out of my mind is the director. To tell, the, to tell you the truth, it really surprised me when I saw the director of Cry Baby was John Waters, one of the most uh, irreverent, obscene co-directors of all time. Pink Flamingos is probably the cult film in the sense that whoever wants to challenge his viewing palette should see. The only implicit sign of Waters I get is... From the beginning uh, of the scene of injections, everyone is taking a shot and it serves no particular function other than making us watch needles puncturing the skin. <laughs> Ladies, you grew up with this film. How do you feel? I, I didn't grow up with this film. Did you, Catherine? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. This wasn't on my radar at all. Uh, I mean, Johnny Depp and I go way back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting you say the the beginning of the film. It's always so difficult to watch. Um, it's a it's a scene of polio vaccinations <laughs> that are happening in uh, in the 1950s, and they're just like comically large needles. Um, and yeah, it's just this kind of strange, grotesque scene where we get introduced to all of the characters in like a lineup um, to get an injection. So I don't know, but like, I think this film, it's just so uh, pleasurable, but also grotesque. Like you, you want to be uh, kind of titillated by it and look at all of the beautiful faces, uh, but it doesn't let you, you know, it like throughout the film, it really um, gives you kinds of kind of like slaps in the face uh, when it comes to the kind of aesthetic pleasures that you're supposed to be uh, watching. So, uh, and also just everybody is is acting as if 
you know, they're on Days of Our Lives. Um, I mean, it's all just like acting, you know, <laughs> just like at 11, everyone's at 11. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's kind of an awkward, awkward film experience, <laughs> but you get to look at Johnny Depp's face, so it's worth it. I don't know. So since you are talking about Johnny Depp, let's talk about Johnny Depp. <laughs> because, I mean, I'm really interested in this because Johnny Depp, once upon a time, he was the hottest star in Hollywood. And now people are writing articles wondering about how he became Mordecai. So <laughs> do you have any thought on that? Well, I mean, he continually, I think, makes choices that are based on uh, quirk. He's he's just like the most predictably quirky uh, mainstream actor at this point, right? Um, I'm trying to think of other examples. He's like, um, all right, so he's like James Franco too a little bit, right? Yeah. And I also, this is just a complete side note, um, I really feel like James Dean, Johnny Depp, and James Franco, when they were 20, they all looked identical. <laughs> they have like the same facial structure or something, like the same brooding Never seen look. them together, so they could be the same person. Somebody should make a little... Um, Gif. Yes, a gif or um, a meme. I'm yeah. using internet language. It's fine. <laughs> um, with the three of them together. Anyway, I'm sorry. Catherine, continue. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. I'm I'm just trying to think about him as, um, I mean, he, at a certain point, he was embracing his, his looks and his star status as a dreamboat. Um, and then after that, he's gone consistently... Um, you know, character, quirky, uh, you know, um, heavy kind of, dis- not disguise, but, you know, um, you know, movie terms, <laughs> makeup. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's just, he gets immersed in a character, a quirky character who's not supposed to be attractive. Um, I mean, I don't think that this even, I mean, certainly we can even say with Edward Scissorhands, this was like a big decision that he made uh, to do that. Um, And then with playing Hunter S. Thompson and um, and even playing uh, Willy Wonka and Mm. all of the, Mordecai just plays into that too, right? This, um, This sense of him as escaping his body, beautiful body shell that he's in, entering someone else's body shell. Um, but it, but it's a little bit frustrating because not that I just want to look at his beautiful normal body shell all the time, but, um, but that he's just so consistently quirky. And so therefore it kind of has emptied out any meaning, you know, from, I I always, always feel like playing Jack Sparrows was the biggest mistake he ever made. Well, the first one was fun, but maybe if they hadn't sort of churned out that franchise where yeah. it started to feel like outrageously trite and and, mm-hmm. and played out and hashed out. And he only got older, which like then it seemed like he was trying too hard or something. He's yeah. like an aging rock star at this point where you're like, ooh, take off <laughs> the bandana and the lipstick and yeah, yeah. call it a day. The eyeliner stuff. Come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So let's get back to the film. So the film is rife with so many social issues that we discuss. 
that we should discuss in terms of their treatment. For example, crybaby sister already has two kids, waiting for the third. A lot of teenagers in this film are orphans. So, how do you see this light-hearted approach? Like, how do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I think that this film, like a like a lot of teen films, just has these completely like at sea individuals who are te- who happen to be teenagers, but they they're like without uh, you know really. I mean, it's not like they're without the, the parents in this film are an interesting topic, you know. But really, the the community and the family that that gets chosen is within um, the drapes, right? Within the drape community, they're going to have this um, this kind of family of teens. Um, although there there's like a mother and father figure there too. So I don't know. It's very strange. At one on one hand, we have um, these teenagers kind of disconnecting themselves from a normal family life, and on the other hand, forming a new one. But yeah, it's interesting. This this kind of um, the kind of orphan slash teen mom uh, aspect of the film. It, I think is part of this weird status that they're all in, right? This kind of suspended, like not adult, not child, don't know what, you know, they don't know what they're doing, but they're just kind of forming their own families as they go along. Well, and it's in teen movies, there's only ever so much room for, uh, for, for adult figures and for parent figures. So a lot of times you'll get like maybe a couple of parent figures and we get that with this, we have the like really suburban, uh, esque parents. And then we have the sort of blue blood grandmother. And then we have the, the like renegade, uh, drape crazy Mm -hmm. parents, um, and it almost seems like a joke that then like everybody else, because there's just no room in the narrative for their parents, like they become orphans then. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, I guess. Cause like in most films they would just wouldn't even address it. Right. You'd just be like, I guess they never play at that kid's house. So we don't know their parents, but in this one, it seems like, well, and then they have to be orphaned. Yeah. And it's so funny the the references that are going on with the parents are wonderful. Um, Patty Hearst plays the mother, like plays a conservative mother uh, of Wanda um, I think, right? Um, uh, no, not Wanda. Uh, anyway, one of the other ones. Patty Hearst is a mom. Uh, and then Iggy Pop is uh, the Uncle Belvedere character. So we have these like kind of radical characters <laughs> from the 60s playing, um, and 70s, uh, playing um, parents in this 90s, meta 50s film. It's really interesting. And it seems to me that all the good YA films have to have this dark side to be memorable, to be long-standing, to be fascinating. So I know because we we have discussed a lot of YA films on Venter, actually. For example, Empire Records and Crybaby. They're popular programming for after hours. Yeah, what people want to (laughs) watch. Late night on Saturday is... (laughs) 90s teen. It's <laughs> <laughs> what I want to watch, and I'm the programming director. So <laughs> well, they're actually fun to watch. And, and it leads you back to another age, in essence. I, you know what struck me about this movie is, so it's clearly a send-up of Greece, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. but Greece was 
already a parody of a certain type of film. And it seems like in the 90s, there was a lot of parodies of parodies. Like Austin Powers was a parody of James Bond, but James Bond is sort of a parody within itself. And um, Scary Movie mm-hmm. was, a, no, wait. Scream? Scream, no, yeah. Scary Movie was a parody of Scream, which was already a parody mm-hmm. Of that genre. So it's sort of like in the 90s, everything went into hyperdrive. Like everyone Mm -hmm. was like, let's just parody the parodies and make everything that much more outrageous for our viewing pleasure. And Well, of course, in the 90s. And then we all went cross-eyed and we started over in the 2000s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the 90s was more postmodern than ever. Yeah. That's the definition. We're, so now what are we, post-postmodern or are we like pre-modern or did we start over? Or? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we started over. Um, now we make movies on iPhones, which is hyper real. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Again, Crybaby plays at Film Scene this Saturday night, April 4th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiwa.edu. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and long-standing role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiwa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Catherine, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for coming back, guys. Oh, yeah, I know. It's so good to be back. Chang Min, it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.